Let's lift our corporate prayer up together as we agree for one another and for those who are not here this morning. Father, we thank you so much for everything that we have been blessed with in Christ Jesus. We thank you that we can truly sing about not needing or having want because of what has been filled in Christ, what is ours now and what is promised to us in him. And Lord, we ask that you would make this more and more the reality we walk in, that we would experience the peace and joy that is ours when we trust the work of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that all our grasping, our striving, our struggling would find peace in you and in the finished work of Christ Jesus on our behalf. Lord, we have concerns this morning. We have various struggles among our congregation, and we ask that you would be our provider in these things, our only supply. I pray that each one of us would turn to you in hope, knowing that your answers are always providence, either provision or protection from the things we are praying for. And so we thank you that all of your blessings are yes to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, some of us are suffering sickness, others various other lacks, and Lord, we pray that we would turn to you. We ask that you would provide, and Lord, I ask that you would use us as your church to meet the needs that you have called us to, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in you who have provided both the desire and the means to obey. Lord, we pray for the kids as they are being schooled in the gospel. I pray that we would do so at home as well so that they would know the truth of our hearts towards you and that we would seek to serve you wholeheartedly wherever we are so that we would bear good witness, first of all, to our children and those in our community. Lord, I pray that you would glorify yourself through us And I ask now that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is speaking to your church. In Christ's name, amen. I want to read to you Psalm 23 again. And I want you to just meditate on the words as we read. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In a world that experiences constant upheaval and conflict, our trust must be grounded in the sovereign control and work of our God. This has been the key theme that we've seen throughout the life of Abraham. This is the key theme of our passage this morning. Knowing that God's promises are true and his providence can be relied on, and this grants us the peace that passes understanding and leads us to Christian obedience. Turning to our text this morning, um, Genesis 25, I have a short message for us after uh, this, and mostly because 
it really should have been a part of last week's message, but last week was such a long passage already, I saved it for us. Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 to 18. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Letashim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanok, Abida, and Alda. All these were children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubine, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, cave of Machpelah, sorry, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. I don't even know if I can do these ones. Neboeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tema, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedama. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their village and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havalah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Our text comes to the end of a major section in Genesis. Uh, it includes the final act in Abraham's life before he was buried with Sarah in the cave at Machpelah. And this is the third of Abraham's three final actions. So last week we talked about the second last, all of chapter 24. The week before that we talked about the first of these final actions. And they all take place kind of after the climax of Abraham's story in offering Isaac on Mount Moriah. Three acts, final acts, of passing the covenant and promise of God on to the next generation. In the first, Abraham procures that first piece of Canaanite land, a burial place for his family, a statement that there will be no going back to Padan Aram, the land of his ancestors. I just love saying Padan Aram. And because this promised land will belong to his descendants forever, Abraham purchased this, this plot and says, this is where we stay. In the second, the entirety of chapter 4, we read last week, Abraham protects his son from intermarriage to the Canaanite people, and at the same time protects Isaac from returning to the homeland by sending his servant to find a wife of the Lord's choosing from among Abraham's relatives. And in this final narrative of his life now, Abraham protects Isaac's inheritance 
by sending away all the other sons out of the land of promise. Each of these final narratives trace the fulfillment, in part, of God's promises to Abraham. And then it also records the obedience of Abraham, which results as a response to God's perfect faithfulness. And this has been the theme of Abraham all along. God is perfectly faithful, always doing what he promises, no matter what Abraham does, and it actually results unerringly in Abraham coming to live faithfully in response to God. And so we want to see both parts. God's promise, human obedience as a result of God being such a faithful God, keeping all of his promises. And as we understand, as Abraham did, how much God can be trusted, that we know if he is our shepherd, that everything is already provided for us, even if we don't yet see it yet, we can begin to walk those paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So Abraham was promised first that he would produce many nations, Genesis 17, and that he would live to a good old age, Genesis 15. And so this genealogy here traces the nations that came from Abraham and that Abraham, verse 8, died a good, in a good old age, an old man full of years. So this is two promise fulfillments. The nations that Abraham was promised he would produce, that's already happening. And Abraham lives to this ripe old age, 175, that's older than I want to live. The faithful response of obedience is also evident here. Abraham safeguarded the covenant promise to his son Isaac by giving his other son's gifts and sending them away, just as he had done with Ishmael. The tribes in Arabia, verse 3, as well as the Midianites, verse 4, all came from Abraham. He gave them gifts, verse 6, but to Isaac he gave all he had. And so there was many tribes which uh, could rightfully claim to be the descendants of Abraham, but only one line was chosen to continue the covenant. This blessing of God is treated in Genesis almost like a tangible thing that can be passed on it, it, as it goes through the lives of Israel's patriarchs and they hand it down from generation to generation, laying hands on their sons. And Abraham protected this heritage for Isaac by sending away all his other sons because they would be a threat to Isaac receiving the full inheritance. And just as he did in chapter 21 with his eldest son, Ishmael. Only one son would receive the promised blessing. Genesis 26, 4. I will multiply your offspring as stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This was not Ishmael's promise, even though he was biologically a son of Abraham. This was not the promise for all of Abraham's other sons, though they too were fully his sons. Once again, the main theme through these final three narratives of Abraham's life is that God is sovereignly accomplishing everything but that the means through which he accomplishes his purpose is often through the faithful obedience of his chosen ones. 
So God's doing it all. He gets all the credit. But those who are walking in faith, in response to God's faithfulness, will sometimes be the ones doing it. So Abraham protects this. But this is all the work of God. We are invited to actively pursue the purposes of God, all the while trusting that he will perfectly bring them to completion. There is no other way to walk in genuine obedience to God than to trust that he is going to fulfill all his purposes even if we fail. I don't like public speaking. And I would not be able to get up here and do this job if I thought that in any way my failure could cost you your salvation or could keep God from doing what he has planned to do. I can only walk in obedience doing the things God's called me to do because I trust that he's going to work it out somehow. That he will be faithful. He will bring his purposes to completion. Isaiah 46, 9-11 says, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. We serve a God who can be trusted to do everything that he has said because he is potent, he is powerful to do whatever he says, and he is a truth speaker. He always does what he says. And so if God promises something to Abraham, we know that no matter how badly Abraham messes it up, God's going to do it because it is not reliant on Abraham. Now, in faithfulness, because of his response to God's faithfulness, Abraham responds in faith and accomplishes God's purpose. But it's because God is accomplishing it through him. And so God called a man named Abraham from a far country to accomplish his purpose. Abraham protected the promise, stewarded it, passed it on to Isaac, and secured it for him to the best of his ability. But verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God, God blessed Isaac his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roi. So Abraham is the one active here in this passage, doing the things that God has commanded. And when Abraham accomplishes this, when he protects Isaac's inheritance, God gets the credit. It's God who has blessed Isaac in the land. Once again, there is a tension in this passage. And it's come up again and again in Genesis. And it's one, God willing, we'll tangle with next week when we come to God's choosing of Jacob over his older twin, Esau. When we see Abraham, under the expressed command of God, sending away Ishmael, first in, in chapter 21, and now all his other sons here in chapter 25, there are questions that arise about God's choosing. Why does this choice happen in what seem to be arbitrary ways? What happens to those who are not chosen? There's no explanation here for what might seem to be unfair to us. No satisfactory answer. No perspective into the inscrutable wisdom of our God. 
He had chosen Abraham from amongst a pagan family in Padan Aram. Now he chooses Isaac from among his brothers. In the remainder of this chapter, we will see him choose Jacob over his elder brother Esau, Romans 9.11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. All we see in this passage is God bringing about his purposes in such choosing. And we see his faithful servant bowing to the superior, inscrutable wisdom of God and then getting on board with the program. God doesn't tell Abraham all his purposes, why he chooses the way he does. Abraham only knows that from among his pagan family, he has been chosen. And he only knows that God has chosen Isaac before Isaac was born. Abraham will cry out to God, won't you bless Ishmael instead of this son that hasn't yet come? And God will say, no, I have chosen Isaac. And he doesn't explain to Abraham why Isaac, not Ishmael, why Isaac, not these others. Why has he rejected all these others and chosen Isaac to be his covenant people? He doesn't explain, but the faithful servant just bows to God's wisdom, bows to God's will, and gets on with it living in obedience. This is a major theme throughout Genesis, and as I said, we will look at it in more depth next week uh, if we're able. But the, the neck, near the end of Genesis, in chapter 48, the sign that Jacob has come to the same faith as his grandfather is that he too reverses the natural order and blesses Joseph's secondborn despite the father's protest. Joseph brings his sons to Jacob. And Jacob's kind of an enigma all the way through his story. He doesn't really do anything that seems to be very faithful. He, at no point is his like, yeah, Jacob really has this amazing trust in God like Abraham. And yet at the end of his story, he's shown to have the same faith as his grandfather by the fact that he actually reverses his hands and blesses the younger son. And, and it's not even necessarily in direct response to a command from God. It's just this moment where you, you see that Jacob finally gets it. He finally gets that God just does whatever he's going to do, and I just m better get on board with it. There's a second genealogy in our passage, and because I already struggled through it, I'm not going to read it again. But these are the generations of Ishmael. Again, this genealogy is connected to the promise for Abraham that many nations and kings were to come from him. But it is a surprise to see Ishmael at the burial of his father. And it's a surprise that the life of Abraham is concluded with a genealogy through Ishmael's line. Isaac is the son of the promise. By God's own choosing and by God's command to Abraham. Like all of Abraham's other sons, Ishmael was sent away to protect the entire inheritance for Isaac. So that that, that land and that blessing would be wholly his and his line. But although Ishmael was not chosen by God, he too has experienced the generosity of God, which embraces all peoples, even his enemies. He receives gifts, verse 6, 
and bears his own blessing as a result of Abraham's prayer. This is part of the fulfillment uh, of God that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Listen to this blessing, Genesis 17, 20 to 21. God responds to Abraham's prayer. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Even as God blesses Ishmael, he reiterates, but he will not bear my covenant. He will not be one of God's covenant people. In chapter 25, we see here that God is faithful in his promise for Ishmael, and Ishmael produces 12 princes leading 12 tribes, even though he is not chosen to be a part of God's covenant people. This text provides a striking presentation of this tension between election to promise, God's choosing for his covenant people, and a generosity which embraces all peoples. God chooses one son for his covenant people, but he is generous with them all through Abraham's gifts. These other sons, will almost all of them become perennial enemies of God and his people. They will continue to be the villains in the story as they come against Israel. And while God reserves his hesed, his covenant love, for those he has chosen, even his enemies are the recipients of his generous character. This is how Jesus is able to command us to do the same. Matthew 5, 43 to 45 you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Because our Heavenly Father is so generous, even with His enemies, so too we, if we are His children, can be expected to love our enemies and pray for those who would persecute us. Our God is one who shows love, kindness, and much patience, even to those who live in rebellion to His rule right up until the point he has chosen to execute his justice. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will no, by no means clear the guilty. When we too show kindness and love to those who hate us, it shows that we are being transformed into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's an opportune time. Perhaps we struggle to be civil with those who have different opinions than us, those who would do things in a different way, those who th whose thinking is, is very different than us. 
And I want to encourage us, church, this morning that we are commanded to be patient and kind and loving, even with those who are legitimately our enemies, out to get us, hateful and would persecute us. To those people, we are to have a kind word, a gentle spirit, patience and love. The generosity that God shows to these enemies of his people here in these passages. And so while I have little expectation that we will all perfectly agree on uh, issues that are not of any sort of prime importance. It is so key that we would treat brothers and sisters in Christ with at least as much good and kindness and patience as we are commanded to our enemies, those who actively are seeking out our destruction. This is how God is. And Jesus teaches us that this is how we show that we are children of God. When we love our neighbor, sorry, love our enemies as well as our neighbors. They might be the same people. Love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. The final promise Abraham received in his life was offspring that would become many nations. But like all the other promises he received, this too would only be a part of what God would finally do. True sons and daughters of Abraham, true sons of our father, daughters of our father, would be called to a faith like Abraham's. People from every nation, tongue, and tribe God has blessed some of Ishmael's biological descendants by making them children of Abraham according to Isaac's lineage, by faith. And this promise to Abraham would not be entirely fulfilled until these Gentiles or non-Jewish nations would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 7-9. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father are those who by faith are according to the lineage of Abraham. Sons and daughters by faith. The New Testament authors bring this up multiple times, juxtaposing Isaac with Ishmael. They were both biological sons, but Isaac was the son of the promise. We too can be Abraham's legitimate children, sons of our heavenly father. This is a status granted to us by his grace, to fulfill the promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so the true children of Abraham, according to Jesus, and according to all the writings of the New Testament, are those who come to faith in Jesus and thereby show that they have the faith that is like Abraham's. In ending the life of Abraham here this morning, we just want to see 
Again, this purpose of God, not only in how he handled Abraham, but how he's handling us this morning. How he's revealing his covenant kindness, his has said, his faithfulness that, that never stops. And the promises that he's given us through his son, that we can count on him to bring to fruition. We can count on everything God has promised. And when we embrace that faith, when we begin to comprehend the goodness and trustworthiness of our God, it radically changes our lifestyle. This is what the psalmist is talking about in chapter 23 when he says that he has no want and has been led by still waters and green pastures knowing that his shepherd is God and then God leads him into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's knowing that we can trust our good shepherd that causes us to walk in his way, causes us to be freed to seek his way and not our own, causes Abraham to be freed to do something that is humanly unthinkable in sending away all his other heirs and trusting God in his promise. God will call you and me to very difficult choices in the coming days. He will call us to make hard decisions and to make bold stands, to share the gospel despite the criticism that that might bring, despite the loss of income that might bring, despite what people might think of us, that we would follow in his ways. And it is only possible for you and I to walk in obedience to the commission Christ gave us is when we trust the faithfulness and goodness of our God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your mighty work. There are so many things about what you do here that we don't understand. But we praise you and we honor you in your superior and inscrutable wisdom. We don't know what your plan is and you oftentimes do not reveal it. But with this hope, we trust the promise that we've received that you are working all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that what you have begun, you will be faithful to complete in us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to hope. I pray that we would have the peace and joy that is a result of our hope in you. That we would walk in, in just this beyond normal circumstance, beyond normal thinking peace that says, God's got me and he will fulfill his purposes in me. I have nothing to fear. Lord, some of us feel like we're going through the valley of the shadow of death. Some of us legitimately are. Give us peace to know that you're our shepherd, leading us even through what might lead to death for us. Because this life is not all there is, it does not end here. Help us to know the truth of your promise. Trust your character, your goodness. And so walk in hope, peace, and joy. Finally, we pray that we would respond in love. The greatest of the virtues that you are working through us by your faithfulness to us. And because you have first loved us while we were still sinners, while we were your enemies, you were gracious to us, generous to us, and gave us your covenant love. I pray that we would respond in kind, loving you loving your church, the people, loving our neighbor as ourself, 
loving our enemies despite the fact that they try to mistreat us. Pray that you would do this all for the glory of Jesus as you bring us to the obedience of faith. In your name, amen.